0: When Mary and I travel and we happen to be gone on a particular Sunday, we try to find a church to go to. And I know a lot of you are the same way. You try to find a church to go to. And as you walk in the doors of that new unfamiliar church... Uh, you take note of what's going on. You mark down the things you like and the things you dislike or something. You say, well, especially as a pastor, think, hey, that's a neat idea. Maybe I ought to apply that here uh, in a church when I get back home here. And uh, usually the the three big things that stand out are whether or not the people are friendly, right? And hopefully if you're visiting this morning, we were friendly. Uh, we don't want to put that on. We really, we're glad you're here, and we really want to be friendly and uh, open arms with one another. Uh, their music is another thing that we usually deal with, correct? You think, well, either you like it or you don't, or hey, I could improve in this area, and so forth. And then the message that is preached, that's another area. Now, those are the three things I sort of look at when Mary and I go to a different church. Okay, were they friendly? Now, I might want to know if I'm comfortable, you know, it's a nice Place to sit, or wooden pews, or did I have to stand the whole time? But, but uh, I want to know: were they a friendly church? Were they glad they had visitors they didn't know? Um, and did I enjoy? And was the music a blessing? And uh, thirdly, what was the message? Did it minister to me? Those are things that I look at. Well, this morning we're going to go visit another church together. We've already visited four different churches. We've been to the church in Ephesus, the one in Smyrna, Pergamum, and last week, Thyatira. This morning, we're going to go to the church that's located in Sardis. But you know what? We're not the ones that are going to be doing the evaluation. It's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ who does the evaluation. And believe me, that, of course, as you understand, is the most important one to do the evaluation of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to go visit that church in Sardis. Which is what is now Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, and the Lord will be there with us. And uh, this will be the first, fifth church we will have visited as we travel through Revelation chapters two and three. Um, the Apostle John, you might remember, was banished to the island of Patmos by the Emperor Domitian. He was for a couple reasons. He was the last living apostle. That was Jesus Christ's chosen apostle, and he was, of course, a leader of the church. Well, while John was on the island of Patmos, the Lord revealed himself in his glory to John, and he revealed this letter we call the book of Revelation. And uh, in that letter of revelation, uh he wanted the churches to know, it describes in detail the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ back to the earth, his judging the nations of the world, his setting up his earth of his earthly kingdom and his bringing in everlasting righteousness, casting all the unsaved of the world into the eternal lake of fire and receiving the saved who will be with him throughout the eternal age of ages. Now there's a whole bunch more things besides that, but that's kind of the big picture that you have in this letter called Revelation. But before he got into the prophetic part of it, which actually starts in chapter 4, he had John write down letters to each one of the seven churches that were representative there. There are seven of them. I said we visited four of them already, and we're now uh, this morning visiting the uh, fifth one. And uh, each letter had a, a message directed right at that church, where they were, what Jesus Christ saw, and uh, what he commends them for, and what he uh, reproves them and exhorts them for as well. But... They were not just for those each of those seven churches. Each letter that he wrote to each individual church also is for all the churches, including this one right here. And uh, we know that because he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, Henry Morris helped us to understand what I mean. He writes... The vision of Christ walking in the midst of the seven representative churches is more than sufficient reason to conclude that the messages apply to all churches in all ages, some to some some churches more than others, and perhaps to some periods more than others. That the messages were intended to apply to the very end of the church age is evident from the fact that, In some cases, at least, he writes, the imminent return of Christ is mentioned in the epistles. This is especially true of the last four churches, Thyatira, Sardis, we'll be visiting today, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Chapter 3 of Revelation concludes the seven letters with the last three of these, all written, so to speak, in the shadow of the coming period of judgment, the Great Tribulation. And he quotes the verse, of Revelation 3.10, the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. End quote. So when the Lord walks in the midst of these seven churches, we find him walking as well in our midst Right now, and with that introduction, let's now visit the church in Sardis. You have an outline in your note, in your uh, bulletin if you'd like to use it, and we're going to begin with the first major part, which is the same in all of these churches: our Lord's revelation of Himself to the church in Sardis. Our Lord's revelation of Himself to the church in Sardis. Number one, well, let's read it first. To the angel of the church, we're in chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. So, number one, he has the seven spirits of God. Turn back to Revelation chapter 1. That will help us, I think, to better understand what he means by that. Verses 4 and 5. There we read John to the seven churches that are in Asia. So this book of Revelation, the letter was written to those seven churches. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. As we looked at that, we mentioned we believe that's a reference to God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne... And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Well, we understand then well, who that is. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. So who is this seven spirits before his throne? And I suggested when we were on that passage back then in chapter 1, that that was a reference to God the Holy Spirit. Revealed in that way. Why? Because this may very well be an allusion to the sevenfold character of the Holy Spirit given in Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah chapter 11, in that passage, the Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of of the Lord. It's interesting as well in that passage, Isaiah chapter eleven, he is also described as coming from God and resting upon the Messiah, Christ, the anointed one. So the glorified Lord Jesus Christ comes to this church in Sardis, to these folk, filled full of the uh, uh, filled full of the fullness of God the Holy Spirit. He exercises the power of the Spirit, whether toward the church or toward the world. Number two, he comes having, he has the seven stars. In chapter 1, verse 20, we have an explanation of that as far as it goes. It says in chapter 1, verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lamp stamps, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Many who study the Bible Suggest that these stars, these seven stars, are references, the word is messengers, angelos, are the messengers or the pastors. They think they're the ones who came and visited John, and John gave each one of them from each one of the seven churches the letter of revelation that included this particular letter to their particular church as well. Others think that perhaps it is a reference to angels as the word angelos in the Greek is used all the way through revelation. Meaning there's an angel that is over a church to protect it. And uh, we don't know. He didn't uh, clarify what that was. But why did the Lord appear to this church in Sardis in this way? That's the important thing here. Having the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. May it possibly be because this particular church was in dire need of the quickening power of the Holy Spirit. As well as the protection of It's ministering angels or pastors, shepherds, if you please. Neither the life nor the power of the Holy Spirit was in this church. For that matter, neither did it have godly leadership, and it desperately needed all of these. That may be why he appeared to Sardis in this way. That brings us to the next major movement here, our Lord's condemnation and exhortation to this church. Verse 1, the latter part, through verse 3. He says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive. But you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Our Lord's condemnation and exhortation to this church, first of all, he says, You have a name, you have a name, but you are dead. There's no mention of persecution in this church, no mention of corrupt theology, no mention of false teachers. Only the mention that it had a good name, a good reputation, but there was no spiritual life in it. In science, we learn of stars that once were bright, radiant with fire, but then became a dead star. And though dead for years, yet its light is still traveling through space, pouring down upon the earth. Such also seems to be the case with this church in Sardis. One time it had a light. People recognized and realized they remembered that light, but not anymore. People would say, that's a good church. But it's the Lord now, not you and me, it's the Lord who's examining the church the folk that make up that church the church was like Samuel Coldridge's poem, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner," which most of everybody here, at least my age, had to read when you went through English Lit in uh, school but you might remember that poem the corpses of dead men rise to man the ship dead men pull the oars dead men hoist the sails Dead, dead men steer the vessel, that's what the Lord was saying was happening in this church in Sardis dead men in the pulpit, dead men filling the pew, dead men running the programs nearly everyone in the church was spiritually dead they were there but they were spiritually dead he says i know your deeds that you have a name that you are alive but you are dead that's coming from the lord jesus christ the only one that really matters right doesn't matter what i think about a church it's what he thinks doesn't, even Paul said, "I don't even dare judge myself." Now we're supposed to do that according to First Corinthians 11, but he said in chapter four, "I don't even judge myself." It's going it's to be left in the hands of the Lord. Wow! Well, if we walk that way, what a difference it would make in our lives. I've met different ones and asked them, "Are you a Christian?" And sometimes they give their what I'm a Baptist. Okay, I'm a Lutheran. I'm a Methodist. I'm a Catholic. That's not what I asked. But that's their response as if to say, well, I go to that church, therefore I must be a Christian. Not so, dear ones. Not so at all. Lots of churches are just like the church in Sardis. But also many a person is known by his or her name. Listen to this. They're known by his or her name. Christian. I'm known by that. I know... Most all of you are known by that. Christian. But here's the thing. Who also may be dead. Dead. The Lord comes along and says to them, You have a name. Yes, you're a Christian. That you are alive. But you are dead. Dead. They are dead in the sense of Romans 8, 12, and 13. He writes, Paul writes, So then, brethren, so now he's writing to you and me, believers, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, what? You must die. But if by the Spirit, remember he comes to this church, sevenfold spirit, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, what? You will live. James explains such death when he writes these words, But each one of you is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to what? You know, sin. And then when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. You see, you can be a Christian and be dead i don't mean you've lost your salvation you don't have eternal life no i mean as he said except you abide in me you can do nothing that's what he means you can do all the works of ministry and do nothing if you're not abiding in him and evidently that's what was going on with a lot of these people in this church in sardis You have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. You may very well be a genuine Christian this morning, but your reputation is only what people think. Your character is what God knows you to be. And the same is true with me. Samson is perhaps the strongest man in the world. We all know him. Strongest person who ever lived. He was God's man and did tremendous exploits of strength, so much so that his name has become equal to strength, right? Yet he got terribly out of the will of God, pursuing the beautiful Philistine woman Delilah. He began to trifle with sin. Excuse me. And then caught up in it, got caught up in it, And the time came when he went out, as at other times, thinking the Lord was with him, thinking he was going to do great exploits, not knowing that the Lord had departed from him. That happens to a lot of believers. It was the case in this church here in Sardis. They have a name, Christian, but Jesus says they are dead. Well, what does he say about it? The Exhortation number two, wake up. Number two in your outline, wake up! John said he didn't sleep last night. I said, don't worry, my Bible text or message, I have a part that says, wake up! (laughs) Wake up and strengthen the things that remain. So the Lord offers them a ray of hope. That's good to know. He offers them a ray of hope here. He says, wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. In Ephesians 5.14, he says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine upon you. That's what a lot of believers need. That's what a lot of us need. No there were a few things salvageable that were about to die. They weren't aware of just how serious their situation was. There was a cold blue about to be declared. How do you though strengthen the things that remain? Good question. When a medic is called to assist somebody that's in barely alive, they come in, they quickly uh, evaluate the situa- situation, carefully evaluate that person's condition, and immediately administer the necessary treatment that might possibly keep that person alive. The medic then gets that person to the hospital where there's uh, better uh, people there as far as uh, equipment and all to hopefully minister to them and get them back uh, on track again physically well. Well... Number three, that's exactly what the Lord helps us to find out. The steps for strengthening the things that remain. So let's drop down to number three. What does he say? Remember what you have received and heard. Remember. Remember. The first thing the Lord tells us to do is what? He drives us right back to the Word of God. That's what he's saying. Remember the things you've received and heard. He drives them right back to the Word of God. Remember what you heard and how it convicted you and brought you to the foot of the cross where you surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that. Remember how you couldn't get enough of God's Word you love going to church to worship the Lord and be with His people. You couldn't get enough of Bible studies. When you first got saved, there were certain Christians God used to introduce you to Christ and to disciple you, to bring you along. He says, remember that. Get back to that. Here's how the writer of Hebrews put it. He says, in his attempt to get those recipients to strengthen the things that remain, he writes, remember, there's that word again, remember those who led you who spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Now, dear ones, many of you have been saved for years. And you have to go back and think if you're able to go back that far about the ones God used in your life to bring you along. It might have been your dad and mom. It might have been a brother and sister. It might have been somebody in the church, a Sunday school teacher and so forth. He says, remember that, get back to that, how precious the word was to you. Get back to what you've received and heard. Get back to the written word of God, including this personal letter I've written to you, says their glorified Lord and Savior. What did he say in 2 Peter? But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Grow in it. Grow in it. Get back to it. And by the way, that's all over the New Testament. Many, many places he emphasizes that. Number four, keep. Keep what you have received and heard. Don't just know God's word. Some of us are very good at that. Don't just know God's word. Don't just know what he commands you to do and not do. Keep it. Keep it. What do we mean? Obey it. Obedience. We come back to James' writings again. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of a person he was. I'm good at that. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. You know, just by way of illustration. Not the world's best illustrations, but you think, I'm going to lose some weight. I need to lose some weight. I'm going to lose some weight. I won't ask how many want to raise their hand and say, yeah, I've been there. And you know, you really mean it. And so do I. I really mean I'm going to lose some weight. I'm going to get down a certain weight and stay there. It's interesting, though, you just never get started. You want to, but it's just not... An, it kind of reminds me of the guy, the two brothers. I think one was a king. And he locked his huge brother up in the... He, 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 he bricked him in. And he made a... In the doorway, he made a narrow, narrow doorway. And the brother could get out as soon as he lost enough weight to get through there. But he just kept pushing the food through to him. And he never lost the weight. Well, God says, keep it. You make a decision, I'm going to obey. Those areas, and and, you know, I'm a classic example of this because the Lord will convict me of something. I say, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Okay, yeah, I know. I'll get at it. Just look, not today. Okay, how about, not a big deal. God says, Well yeah? Not a big deal, Bill? Now, none of you are like that. Just just the guy up here in the pulpit. He's the only guy like that. Not a big deal to you. How long do I have to stress this? You know, interesting about Moses, all he did is got angry at the people and struck the rock and God said, that's it. You've disqualified yourself. Scary, isn't it? Paul was concerned about that. It is a very big deal when God, the Holy Spirit, and the Lord comes with you with the sevenfold spirit and he speaks to your heart and my heart, and you and I don't respond to that, it is a very big deal to God and to you and to me. So where does it start? Remember what you have received and heard and keep it. And what does he say? Repent. Oh, repent. To repent means to have a change of mind, a change to change directions and go the other way. To repent means you are now going to do something about your sinful ways. You're not, you're now going to obey God. You're going to walk in God's ways and obey Him. And then number five, warning. Warning. What does He say? I will come like a thief. I will come like a thief and if you will not, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. You know, listen carefully to what I'm going to say now. One of the strongest cures for being spiritually dead or for remedying lethargy and indifference in the Christian life is being awakened to the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Boy, I'll tell you, if if you, in your heart, think he really is close to coming... Uh, It'll do something to you. And that's why the writers of the New Testament emphasized over and over at the direction of God, the Holy Spirit... The Lord kept saying over, I'm coming back. Listen, I am coming back. Understand, I am coming. It's practically in every book of the New Testament. I am coming back. Prepare yourself. I am coming back, and I'm coming back like a thief. You're not going to know what hour I will come, but you certainly can know the time area as far as the general period of time by what's going on and what he says is going to happen. By the way, that's one of the reasons we're going through the first five chapters of Revelation. You've got a sense that something's going on worldwide. I mean, catastrophic things, I'm not going to go through all that again, but from our weather patterns to just the way the things are going around the world, even unsaved people, brilliant people from scientists to ecologists and so forth, they, they realize things are not normal. This is, we're, we're, we're tipping on the edge of disaster. They understand that. And certainly God's people, of all people, ought to understand that. And God's laid it on my heart to try to prepare you for this which is about to come. I'm not predicting when the Lord's going to come back. But I know one thing. He wants us to be looking for His return. That He doesn't catch us off guard. If you continue asleep, you're going to be caught off guard, though. That's exactly what happened twice to the people of Sardis. They... They were located. Sardis was an ideal for de- defense. It stood high above the valley of Hermas and was surrounded by deep cliffs, almost impossible to scale. They felt so confident that nobody could conquer them. But in 549 BC, the Persian king Cyrus conquered the Sardis, con- Sardis and its king Croesus by scaling the cliffs under the cover of darkness. As I understand, some slave person told him about this secret trail up the cliffs. Hard to get to, but they could, and they didn't even guard it. They weren't even concerned that anybody would uh, come up that way. In 214 B.C., the armies of Antiochus the Great captured the city by doing exactly the same thing. The Lord warns this church that it's going to happen again. He will come to them like a thief. They're not expecting it, and it's going to happen. They need to heed his letter to them and prepare themselves so they will be ready when he comes. Otherwise, they'll experience what the Apostle John wrote. Listen to this. I've used it over and over, and I'm going to continue what he wrote in his first epistle. Listen to this. Now, little children, number one, who's he writing to? You tell me. Little children, who's that? Anybody? Believers. Believers, little children, abide in Him. That's obedience, isn't it? That's walking in fellowship. Why? Why should I do that, John? So that when He appears, we may have confidence. Now listen carefully. And not shrink away in shame at His coming. That tells me that when He comes, there's going to be a lot of believers that will shrink away in shame. Saved, yes. Going to heaven, yes. But in shame. And if you don't believe that, just go to Second Corinthians 5, 10. Every believer will stand before him and be judged. Not by your, whether you're saved or not, but your works will be judged. And Paul goes on and extends there in First Corinthians chapter 3. He says that some will be saved, they'll go through the fire, their works will. And some, their, all their works will be burned up, and yet they'll be saved, yet so as through fire. That's a frightening thing. And evidently it's going to happen to a lot of believers and we do not want to be one of those believers, right? Right? Okay, boy. The thief comes unannounced. The thief comes to steal and destroy. You will not know at what hour the Lord will come, but He most surely will come. I think about those people and in no way am I accusing them or or judging them, but it's a fearful thing, you know, they were not expecting to die yesterday. I'm not expecting to die today. But the Lord gives a couple of parables to warn, not parables, but a couple of stories to uh, the Jewish people. Listen, listen, it's going to happen. You don't know when, you don't know how it's going to happen. You better be ready. That's a big issue there, a big point. Reminds me of... Uh, the the explosion of Mount St. Helens and good old uh, Harry Truman in Spirit Lake, they warned him and warned him and warned him, hey, I've lived here forever, I'm not concerned. Well, he should have been buried. But you know what a frightening thing when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. Listen, he has told us over and over and over again, I'm coming back and I'm coming back like the, the world's not going to expect it. That's going to be the farthest thing from their mind. But he says, I'm coming back like a thief. You be ready. In fact, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians 5. Don't lose your place in Revelation 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want to read just the first six verses of 1 Thessalonians 5. Writing to the believers there. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need for anyone to, uh, f- of anything to be written to you. He had taught them well. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. It's always described that way. They're just not expecting it. Not a clue. While they are saying peace and safety, then, Destruction will come upon them suddenly. Like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Again, that's why... We are going through these first five chapters of Revelation to prepare us. That brings us to the next final point there. Our Lord's encouraging words to the faithful in this church. Our Lord's encouraging words to the faithful in this church. Number one, He recognizes their genuine faith and faithfulness. Verse four. He recognizes their genuine faith and faithfulness but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. He recognizes their genuine faith and faithfulness. There were some believers, some genuinely saved people in this church evidently. The Lord recognizes that they have lived pure lives in their daily walk both in the church and outside the church. They've been true, obedient, they have not joined the others who had polluted their garments, spiritually speaking, by living just like the world is living. David Hawkins writes Hero- Herodotus, the Greek historian, said that the citizens of Sardis had a reputation for lax moral standards and open licentiousness, which might explain the emphasis of verse 4 concerning a few people who had not defiled their garments. I thought he was writing about the United States there. Goodness. The Lord says three things about these faithful Christians. They will walk with me. They will walk with me. You know, all the different presidents we've had, whenever they take a trip on Air Force One or go certain places, they'll often invite special people, friends, to be privileged to come and be with them. This is much, much better than that. The Lord Jesus Christ says, these people I'm inviting, they're going to walk with me. Of course, walking with him with no sin nature In a glorified body. What an incredible thing. You know, He is the center of the whole universe. He's who it's all about. And we're going to discover that. And that's what we're trying to do as Christians who are growing. Growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said that I may know Him. Oh, that is the richest, deepest, most glorious, precious treasure of all. That I may know Him. Oh, he says, Paul, you're going to walk with me. You're going to walk with me. Where I go, you're going to travel with me. You're one of my close companions and friends. He even said in Luke, I will have them sit down. I will gird myself. I will serve them. Amazing what God has. The Lord has planned for those who belong to Him. Secondly, they will walk with me in white. We're going to examine that more in detail in verse 5. But thirdly, for they are worthy. Worthy? Worthy of what? Well, the Lord answers, Worthy to walk with me in white. J.B. Smith says, quote, one should think grace could go no further, but there are other promises of like import equally gracious. For example, where I am, there shall also my servant be. They shall see my face. We shall be like him. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Sit with me in my throne. Appear with Him in glory. His day of glory will be your and my glory, day of glory as well. Reign with Him, it says in 2 Timothy 2 and Revelation 5. And we could add many more to this list. Well, number two, they will walk with Him clothed in white garments, he says. They will walk with Him clothed in white garments. Again, Quoting a different fellow here, W.A. Criswell, he writes, To the Jew, white raiment was a sign of purity and holiness and devotion to God. To the Romans, the white robe was no less meaningful. There were three classes of Romans, the patrician, the knight, and the plebe. The patrician, or senator, wore a long garment of pure white, expressive of the dignity, the sublimity of his calling and his office. God says, I will clothe them in white. End quote. It was also the Roman custom for a Roman general, a conquering general, to ride through the city in Rome in his chariot, clothed in a white gown or robe. uh, That was a robe expressing victory and great honor and recognition. He says, I'm going to recognize you. It'll be a great day for you. Some Christians find themselves, though presently, wearing garments polluted by the flesh that's a strong word by Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. He describes and listen to his words. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others. Snatching them out of the fire and on some. On some have mercy with fear, hating even the garments polluted by the flesh. A lot of that. What are these white garments those who overcome will be clothed in? Revelation 198, Revelation 19 tells us. It was given to her, that is, the bride of Christ, those saved during this age of grace, to clothe themselves in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous act's of the saints. Believe me, it is important for you to walk in fellowship to abide in the Lord Jesus Christ to use your spiritual gifts to be living and growing and serving Him right now. It is extremely important that we do that and so many Christians, it's kind of a casual thing hey, I'm saved, I'm forgiven I'm going to go to heaven, that's a big thing to me no, listen, that is a wonderful thing for sure but that, don't stop there it is so important because the rest of the Bible is written to you and me to get us to grow and to walk with Him and to serve him and he will reward us beyond comprehension when he comes back which will be very soon number three their name will be forever written in the book of life their name forever will be written in the book of life he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life well let's clear up a mystery here You know your Bible, you're thinking, now wait a minute. Here in Revelation 3, 5, the Lord says he will not ever erase the overcomer or the Christian's name from the book of life. But in Exodus 32, verses 32 and 33, Moses prays to God, but now if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book From out of your book which you have written. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Well, will God or will he not blot out any name he has written in the book of life? No, he won't and here's why. The book Moses is talking about refers to God's bringing upon the sinning person an untimely death. Is not a reference to one's eternal life. That book has the days of your physical life recorded. And God says, I can cut them shorter. And believe me, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he evidently does. And uh, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. And that's what Moses is saying. He said, "Just, just kill me now. If you're not going to forgive them, then just kill me. God says, no, I'll, I'll kill whoever. I'll, I'll abruptly shorten somebody's life who is in rebellion against me and will not turn and repent. Well, six times this, the book of life is mentioned in the book of Revelation. You'll write them down. I'm not going to have you turn to them except for one passage, but six times it's mentioned in this book. Of course, right here in verse five, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And then in chapter 13, verse 8. 13, verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship the Antichrist, the beast, the false, and the false prophet, but basically the beast, the Antichrist. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. The third time it appears is chapter 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come upon uh, up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. And then Revelation 21, verse 27. And nothing unclean, And no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. That's the New Jerusalem, the city of the New Jerusalem. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. But it appears two more times. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. So important. This is the final judgment of everybody that was born, created like Adam, and born from then on. Chapter 20, it appears twice in this section, verses uh, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, who, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Evidently, there are going to be degrees of punishment in this eternal lake of fire. It's interesting because you, to try to get a hold of an eternal damnation of torment and lake of fire, I have said from this pulpit, you have to go visit the cross and try to understand what God had to do to his son at the cross in order for you and me to be saved. It is incomprehensible, but if you try to somehow justify that God in no way could uh, uh, allow people to suffer throughout eternal ages, you have to go to the cross to see what he had to do to his son in order for us to escape such a horrible judgment. And I think about somebody who has, I think about people like Hugh Hefner, Larry Flint. And here's the thing with God's justice. You take, and I've used this before, but a a perfect pond. It's just perfectly quiet. No ripples, nothing. And you throw a stone out in the middle. And then you get these concentric circles that are there. And God said, when it comes to judging you, I am the perfect judge. Nothing escapes my attention. I weigh everything precisely. Nothing is out of whack when I weigh it. And he says, the fact that you do this wickedness and this family was ruined, this family got a divorce, this child's all messed up, this child is abused and just keeps going on out. All of that I must take into consideration and I will judge you according to all that. Frankly, I don't want that kind of judgment. I am so thankful that Christ bore it all for me at the cross as he did everybody. But so many people think that just like Oh, good old, um, the fellow there in Spirit Lake, they think that somehow that judgment's never going to come. He said, I'm going to come like a thief. But let's go on here. Verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. How would one's name be found in the book of life? They would put their faith in Jesus Christ. We sang that song about we have an anchor there. The anchor that enters into the veil. I have an anchor in Jesus Christ. How important this is. Those are the different illustrations or the different times that the, the book of life appears. Just let me summarize that if I might. Number one, it is a book that uniquely belongs to the Lamb of God and is related to his death. Number two, your name must be written in the book in order for you to enter the heavenly city. Number three, if your name is not found written in this book, you are cast into the lake of fire. And number four, those who dwell on earth during the tribulation and marvel at the beast do not have their names written in this book, nor have their names been there since the foundation of the world. Well, number four, he will confess their name before his father and the angels. He will confess their name before his Father and the angels. Let's go back there to chapter 3 again. Verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garment, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. At the great white throne judgment will be all the unsaved people from the beginning of time, creation of man, who have not confessed Jesus Christ, Who have not put their faith in Him and Him alone and they will be there because they denied the Lord Jesus Christ and He will stand before God the Father and then He will deny them. They do not belong to me. They did not want me. They turned me away. He will publicly deny them because they refuse to confess Him as their Savior and Lord. Dear one, if you're visiting this morning, we pray for you. We plead with you. Say, good old Harry Truman, get out of spirit lake. It's going to blow. No concern. Interesting how the enemy gets us the same way. No concern whatsoever. And I'll come and be like a trap, it will close on them, I'll come like a thief and they'll be unprepared. And they'll be destroyed. But every person who has put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting Him completely for their salvation, he says, I will publicly confess them uh, as the one of His own, one of His most precious ones before my Father and before the righteous. angel." What a glorious time that will be when He does that. What an amazing thing. Praise God. Praise God. What amazing grace. And then finally, God the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Do you hear him? Verse 6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Yes, you have a name, Christian, but are you alive? Or you say, you know what? I am so dead. I am spiritually dry. I am empty. I'm frustrated. I'm struggling. He said, look, remember. Remember the things you've heard and received. Take hold of them. Repent. Say, God, from here on out, I want to walk with you. I want to start growing in Christ in your knowledge in your grace but perhaps you're here and you say you know what I I don't think my name is written in that book of life you know how my name got there actually I'm not going to try to figure out the fact that it was written before the foundation of the world God knows all things but I want to say this I remember as a little boy I'm glad he put it on the level of little kids we make it so hard it would just simply putting my faith in Jesus Christ. I know I'm a sinner. I know that if I die right now, I'm not arguing with you, God. I deserve to go hell. That, go to hell. That's where I'd go. You say, oh, Bill, you weren't that bad. I was born in sin. And God says there's nothing that you have that can gain any merit whatsoever. You can't get to the right church and get merit from the church. Stop thinking that way if you're here. Church can't do it. Sacraments can't do it. He said, The only one that can do it is my son. I am satisfied with what he did for you. Put your faith in him. So as a little boy, I said, I, I know I'm a sinner. I don't want to go to hell. I want to have Jesus in my heart. I want to be forgiven. I want to have eternal life. Jesus Christ come into my heart and save me. Now maybe I wouldn't be mad to pray that because God knew what was going on anyway, but I prayed that little prayer. You know what? God saved me. God saved me. I'm so glad He did. And you know what else? Very soon, very soon, he's coming back again. Get ready. Beware. This church in Sardis need to come alive. Be ready. Father, thank you for letting your son or your son follow your direction and walking in the midst of the believers there in Sardis. They sure thought they were alive. People that knew the church thought it was a pretty good church, but you said, I have this against you. You know you're dead. You need to remember. You need to take hold of that, what you heard and received. You need to keep it. You need to obey it. You need to repent. You need to wake up. Wake up. Get out of your lethargy, your stupor. For I'm coming and I'm going to come like a thief and you'll be left unprepared. Father, help us to settle this issue that, first of all, that we're saved that we put our faith in you, Lord Jesus Christ, and our name is definitely written in the Lamb's book of life. Help us to get that settled. We don't want, oh God, I don't want anybody here to stand before the great white throne and you say, where's your name? Where's your?" Don't tell me about all your good deeds. Don't tell me about that you were religious, that you were moral. Don't tell me about the good things you did to help people. Where is your name? Where is it? It's not in my book. It's not written there. Oh, Father, help that person now to get that settled. Simple act of faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And then, Father, maybe many of us have been comfortable too long. You know our hearts, you know our lives. It's time we awakened. It's time that we had genuine life, that we abode in you, Lord Jesus Christ, for apart from you we can do nothing. It's time that we got jump-started and began to bear fruit. It's time we began to serve you, that we used our spiritual gifts so that we would not be ashamed at your coming, which I believe is so soon. Speak to our hearts, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.